Hello, and welcome to We Can Be Heroes with me, Paul Burston. This is the podcast in which my guests are invited to wax lyrical about their heroes and heroines, people who've inspired them and helped shape their lives. I'm an author and journalist, and there are many people I consider heroes, both real and fictional, famous and not so famous. Among them is the late, great David Bowie. And each one says something about me, because the people we regard as heroes often reveal who we are, our strengths and our weaknesses, the struggles we faced, and the times we've shown courage we didn't even know we had. It's been said before, but it bears repeating, not all heroes wear capes. We can all be heroes, even if it is just for one day. My mum knew that they had the best HIV AIDS clinic there, and they, they took me straight to St Stephen. And I was diagnosed on the spot, taken straight into Macaulay, and nearly died. My guest today is a survivor in many senses of the word. As well as his very public recovery from drug addiction, he also survived an AIDS diagnosis and the loss of far too many loved ones. That he's still here now is a miracle in itself. That he's turned his life around so successfully is a testament to his strength of character. He's a DJ who's in demand with celebrities from David Beckham to Kate Moss. His memoir, I Don't Take Requests, is a Sunday Times bestseller and charts his rise, fall and subsequent rise. He is, of course, Fat Tony. Hello, Tony. Welcome to We Can Be Heroes. I was just thinking back to when we last saw each other in person, and I think it was 12 years ago at the press preview for Mark Wardell, a.k.a. Trademarks, exhibition scene at the Galleria in Palmal, and our portraits were both featured in the exhibition. That's right. I was like three years, uh, three years sober, and he'd done that picture with the glitter on it. Yeah. In the picture, you've got um, the words "God help me" on your on your arm. Yeah, the tattoos. Yeah, yeah. correct. Yeah, I remember that. Things have really, really changed for you since I last saw you. Your life has just become completely unrecognizable from what it was. Yeah, totally. I mean, look, you know, it's kind of I had like that short holiday of twenty eight years of being who I was, and then when I got sober. It was about finding who I was again and finding my feet. And I think that, you know, where I am today from where I was 15 and a half years ago, it's totally unrecognisable. But really, if you take the 28 years out of the middle of it, it kind of is more understandable. Once I got clean, I just decided that I was going to go forward with everything that I've dreamed of doing. And it's kind of just all work because... I kind of have this thing now, which I've never had before, which is self-belief. I had ego, but I didn't have self-belief. I, my ego came from a place of fear. It didn't come from a place of security. It came from insecurity. I think when you have clarity about yourself and you're not... I had problems with alcohol. I've been dry for nearly a year and a half. I hate that word dry. That word dry. Sober. I've been sober and I don't miss it at all. Everything has been positive. There's been nothing negative about it whatsoever. It's been just all positive. One of the things I wanted to ask you was because I had a series of sort of challenges that I thought I, th I kept thinking about. The first time I went to a party sober, the first time I went to a dinner party sober, the first time I did a performance because I used mm -hmm. to host my event and I would have a couple of drinks before going on stage. You work in Clubland where the whole environment is very much around altered states. Is that, yeah. is that more challenging? I think it's less challenging now. It, at first, it was really challenging, the first year, because 
what we do is we put down the drink and the drugs and do, nothing changes apart from the fact that we stop using drinks and drugs. We think we've worked on ourselves. It's too soon to even know who we are that first year, that second year. And what we do is we spend so much time giving things that we can't do power. You know, like, I can't go there. I can't do this. And you know what? I'm a really big believer and I, and I live my life this way that you can do anything you want to when you stop giving the I can't the power, you know, and give it to I can. We're capable of so much. So for me now, I don't miss drink or drugs. I'm surrounded by it. I don't have a problem with people using drugs. I have a problem with people abusing drugs. That's where I'll always step in. But anyone that's having a good time, good luck to them. You know, good luck to them. I personally can't have a good time when I do that, either a drink or a drug. I took it to those levels where it wasn't a good time. And for me, I think that really is the bit that really resonates with me, is the fact that it wasn't fun. So why would I miss it? You know what I mean? The fun had gone a good 10 years prior to me stopping, and then it becomes survival. And so I'm surrounded by it within my industry and within my job. You'll be surprised how many people don't partake now. It's no longer the ones that have had to wait to get to God's waiting room before they change. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> There's a whole new influx of young, you know, young, energetic kids who just think, well, that's not the avenue I want to go down. And I, I like to think that, you know, people like myself and people like you and, and other people that have got to the end of the road with what we were doing and abusing, we kind of lead the way in so many ways and the more vocal we are and the more honest we are about our journeys and where it took us is the more hope it will give to other people and they just think mm, i've seen what that does i've seen you know because everyone loves to party everyone likes to have a good time and they can and you know what i probably have a better time now than i ever did when i was using one of the things that surprised me was how many people that i know that have contacted me privately to say they were struggling and they wanted to... That's it. As soon as we open our mouths, right, we can get fed. And by doing it and being honest with it, because what happens is the old ways, right, of Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous, 12-step programs, was the word anonymous. People never, ever said, okay, I'm going to, I found a way of stopping drinking. They, it was all the friends of Bill, all secret handshake, all under... You know, I lived my life under a rock for a good 20 years, right? When I got sober, I wanted the world to know, A, because there was gonna be no going back. So the more vocal I was about it, the more I knew that I couldn't go back down that road. So when I got out of rehab, I published my diaries in, in, in the old QX magazine. And I just thought, right, okay, well, the world knows now. My bubble knew, do you know what I mean? But that was enough. That was a really good springboard into recovery because there was no going back. I never came back to London. I never came back to DJ. I never came back to anything. What I did do was come forward. And I've kind of kept it that way. I go forward. And I just think that when I started writing the book, the main reason I wrote the book was because I wanted people... It wasn't a book about being a victim. It wasn't a book about any of that stuff. Well, it was about the book about redemption. But I wanted people to understand what I'd been through to, to the levels of what I'd been through and still find humour in stuff. And, and, you know, that there is light at the end of those tunnels. I think humour is really important. I think that the fact that 
people of from from the worlds that we've moved in and the kind of people that we are i think that humor is is often used in a kind of defensive way perhaps but i also think that humor is a great way of communicating something because people will listen if you make them laugh there's a difference between laughing at something because you don't understand it or laughing at something because you're scared of it we've all grown up with that society's always put that on us when we grow up when we, we were uncomfortable with something with our sexuality, we'll make a joke of it. But, you know, when you own something and you you have dealt with that and you, you kind of look at it with different eyes, you, you really find the humour in it. You know, I used to, like, get go to bed, right? I never used to open envelopes, ever. Right? Any envelope that came from the door, I never opened them. It was kind of a mental health thing. And I would wake up at 3 a.m. in the morning and I would... Stress beyond all belief, thinking, right, you're going to prison for tax evasion, you're going to blah, blah, blah. And by 7 a.m., I would want to kill myself. And that, you know, that was the, the reality. Then I would actually get out of bed and eventually open those envelopes, and none of them were even addressed to me. But, you know, I, in my head, that was it. They were coming to take everything. You know, I had nothing for them to take. But what it was, was, you know, it was that whole world-shattering belief of, like, of doom and stuff. Because I didn't know how to face those things or front those things. And as soon as I fronted them, I could laugh at it. I was thinking, oh, my God. When I was in rehab, I was in a meeting in Bournemouth. And I remember this old queen said to me, you shouldn't be laughing in meetings. You should be taking this seriously. And I just looked at him and I just thought, I am taking this seriously, but I find the humour in it. You know, and he was like, you won't get clean if you keep laughing. He relapsed about a month later, after like 17 years or something. You know, life is fucking hilarious. Things that we put ourselves through, right, when we get to the other end of it, and we look back at it, oh, my God, I used to do that. And I, it makes me laugh, because yeah. what else am I going to do? I can't laugh at it. Because, you know, when we find humour and stuff, it takes the power out of it. What you're saying there really makes me think about the first of the heroes that, you, that I had on your yeah. list that you sent through, because... This was somebody who had a very, very public outing in the, the most embarrassing way and with typical humour turned it into a great big huge fuck you to the world and made it the most amazing song and video. So who is your first hero? George Michael. He was a big part of my life growing up, a big part of my life on so many levels. What I love about, what I loved and still love about George was what he did behind closed doors for people, not only from his own community, but every community. You know, anyone that was struggling, he would reach into his pockets and help them. And he never, ever wanted the pat on the back for doing it, like a lot of people do. The most you know, amazing line that he ever wrote in one of his songs was, charity's a coat you wear twice a year. And it wasn't for George. He had a whole fucking extensive wardrobe <laughs> of charity coats. Do you get what I mean? Because that's all he ever did. And he gave back so much to our community and made sure so many people were okay at the end of the day. And I just think that that in itself is a massive hero. I was a part of George's outing for many years. I used to say it to him all the time, for fuck's sake, come out. And, you know, his boyfriend was my best friend, blah, 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 blah. You know, I was in Boy George camp. George was forever trying to out him. And then when he finally got to the point where he got caught cottaging, it was like the hugest relief. Not only for him, but for everybody around him. It was like, okay, now finally he can be who he wants to be. But out living this life of like having to pretend that he's someone he's not. And then when he did outside, it was the most amazing video, most amazing song. I was actually listening to it yesterday. I listen to George Michael quite a lot in my house. When I'm at home, 
I'm on my own. And I, yesterday was a bad day for me because I really missed my dog. You know, she's only been gone two months. So I had a George Michael day and it always makes me cry, but it always makes me happy. And it always lifts me. It doesn't make me cry because I'm sad. It makes me cry from the energy and the joy that are in those songs. George is such a hero on so many levels. You know, if you listen to the words of any of those older, of the older album, and you understand what they're about, you know, spinning that wheel was about cruising. As a young gay man growing up, and you listen to those words, the identification, you know, because forever, you know, you play I Will Survive, half the dance floor will think it's about them because they might have suffered cancer, or, you know, they've been through a break, marriage breakup. That's the power of music. Whatever that person has written about, it has the ability for you to, to identify with it and make it about you. And that's so incredible. And to have that power of writing a song like that, you're a hero. Do you remember when you first became aware of him? Yeah, when I first met him, I, I went to his house in Bushy. I went to his mum and dad's house on the estate. They had, a part, they had a party on New Year's Eve and they invited me. I went with Philip Tong and a few other people and... I remember George saying to me, I'm in a band now. Yeah, we started a band called Wham. I was like, all oh, right, okay, yeah. And that's when they, then they released Young Guns after that. It was um, a very long time ago. And, you know, everyone fancied him at first. And I, everyone was like, he's gay. And everyone was like, no, he's not. It was one of those ones, do you know what I mean? And he started hanging around with one of my best friends. And I was like, you're seeing him, aren't you? And he was like, yeah. I was like, okay. I still remember as a teenager, because I was into culture club and new romantic stuff all my friends were really anti-wham because wham was too kind of mainstream pop but I, I remember vividly when they first appeared on top of the pops doing young guns and, and looking at it thinking this is so gay it was beyond gay right leather waistcoats like leather biker jacket waistcoats on and and pedal pusher jeans i remember that appearance to this day it was a great moment as, as it progressed and it kind of just went on you realize the 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 fun element of, of Shirley and Pepsi and what they were really there for, you know, and Andrew. I'm very, very fortunate I had George in my life for, for a long time. And um, on many an occasion, it went in different directions, but it always came back to friendship at the end of the day. And I'm very blessed to have him in my life and still have him in my life by the power of music. You mentioned that they had the George because they were the two big Georges at the same time. And um, Boy George was obviously a good friend of yours. There was some public spats between them. I was very touched by the fact that when Boy George was in prison, that George Michael reached out to him. I think he reached oh. out to him. He was in open prison. I, I used to go. I used to go every fucking week. It was like visiting Crusty the Clown when he was no longer a clown anymore. There's one thing. <laughs> where Crusty was in prison. On a, no, he went missing. He didn't want to be a clown anymore. And he was, they found him on a boat and he had his hair tied back and he was wearing jeans. And that was always my vision of George in prison. It's like literally like being it would cost you the clown. It was like, yeah. But you know, yeah, George Michael did that was that's what was so amazing about Yog was the fact that he would reach out and he reached out to so many people. When it came to writing the today with the hero, I really wanted to put Boy George in. He's one of my best friends, but he's also such a fucking hero on so many levels. Because he's one of the one, one people in my life that will always tell me what I need to hear. When I'm being a twat or I'm being this or being that, he would always be one person that says, you need to stop doing that. You need to do that, you know. And the other person as well that's equally just should be up there is Elton. You know, that man, it's another unsung hero. You know, they, they do so much for our community 
I wrote about it in my book when I was when I was in the Thomas Macaulay ward when I'd just been diagnosed with HIV in 2001. And I nearly died. I was in there for six months. And two or three of those months, I was on the life support, like uh, in a cu- induced coma. Um, and when I came around, you know, Elton John, they paid for the food on that ward to be cooked because they knew that the importance of nutrition food from the inside out. And that just made that stay in hospital so much more bearable. The fact that it was decent food and it was being cooked. And it was like, you know, there was real love and care. Well, what a fucking incredible human being that man is. You know, I put it in the book, in the AIDS chapter, because I thought it was a really important part of our social history that people don't really know about. Going back to George Michael, after he passed away, there were so many stories coming forward about all, all these charitable things that, he, that he'd done for people privately. The nurse was on a television phone-in program loose women or this morning or something and was basically talking about how difficult things were financially and he contacted the television producers and contacted her and and gave her money i mean it was just like what an amazing thing to have done that's what he did all the time you know he bought people cars he bought people houses it's like you know he went beyond the call of duty he went beyond anything you know and that's that's a that's a hero that is a hero you know the fact that he could change somebody's life by making a phone call. You know, so many people have that power and that and that privilege, but they don't use it. What do you think you've learned from him, or what do you, what what influence do you think he's had on on you as a person? Growing up, he wasn't really an influence on me because I was too busy being anti and him being the antichrist because he wasn't out, and then the circles of friends that we all missed. But especially later, you know, the words to like outside the words to. to Fast Love and the words to Spin That Wheel and all those songs, honestly, they never cease to amaze me. When I put them on, they have that ability just to take you to a magical place of, of euphoria. And, and I think what I've learned from, from George is not to be afraid of, of your emotions and actually to, to voice them and to put them down. Or, or if you can't write them down, just to express them. As we go through life thinking, oh, what do people think of do you know what I mean? And he got to the stage in George's later life where he didn't care what people thought of him. You know, because there were so many, so many dramas going on. You know, he was on that drama train. I went to his house several occasions to try and help him. And, you know, he, he, he would be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, typical, two days later, and not pick up the phone. But, you know, I have definitely learned a lot about love from that man. Who is the second person you'd like to nominate and again why have you chosen this person i've chosen quentin crisp because you know what growing up as a young kid if you were in any way effeminate or you were any way gay or the slightest you know not like everybody else at school you were called quentin crisp because at that point in time the naked civil servant had just come out which john hurt played quentin in and it just blew me away you know just the fact that that guy what he went through to fight for freedom in in Back then, in so many ways, of his own internalized homophobia, the world's homophobia, and everything that he went through. And really, you know, there should be statues of that man. There should be statues of Quentin. We should, we should have a national Quentin Christmas Day. Because it's not only about Quentin, but it's about those first freedom fucking fighters that no one could ever tell you their names. Being gay in society today, you don't need to know those people's names as long as you've got 
a really hot picture on your grinder profile or you go to the gym six days a week or any of that stuff, you know, that make our gayness so unique, which isn't unique whatsoever. I really think that our community and all the other communities as well around it should put these people where they need to be. He made it okay to wear lipstick. He made it okay to, to dye his hair red, you know, and go to all of those places and, and, and be and express who he was. You know, we don't have that really today. We don't have people like that doing that for us today in that sense. You know, and, and, and people go, oh, we don't really need to have those people, but we fucking do, more so than ever. On so many levels, we're going backwards when it comes to freedom. But it's 2022. Where are we, man? Why do they keep putting these rules in? You know, people can't use this toilet. People can't use that toilet. We go so far, it's like giving someone a, a Mars bar, putting it in their mouth, and then says, oh, you're not allowed to buy it. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of just gets the, yeah, oh, it's insane. But, you know, Quentin was just such an incredible person. And I made it my life goal to go meet him. Did you? <laughs> I met him. I, I had lunch with him three times in New York. You know, he, you could call him and he, you could meet him for lunch, pay for lunch, and he would tell you stories. That's what Quentin did. So incredible to be in that person's, just to be around someone like that. You know, we all talk about big dick energy. That guy certainly had bigger dick energy than anyone I've ever met. <laughs> I was nine years old when The Naked Civil Servant was shown on TV. And my yeah. mum was working as a nurse on the night shift and I watched it with my stepdad who was a very lovely man a really kind gentleman working class builder and at the end of the program he turned to me I was sitting on the sofa getting more and more and more red with recognition he turned to me and he said your mother's worried you might turn out like that and at the time it horrified me I was actually quite frightened of what Quentin represented when I was nine and of course and it took until I was about 15 and I went and got a copy of the book and read the book and realised what an absolute freedom fighter he was and how, how incredibly courageous he was because he grew up in the shadow of the wild trial. I mean, he grew up at a time when the public image of homosexuality was so bad and so criminal and he just refused to conform, didn't he? It was absolutely oh, incredible. You know, and what makes me laugh, and don't get me wrong, I think it's great that everyone does what they want to do in life. You know, don't run around fucking East London in a wig wearing, with a beard, thinking that you did it first, because you didn't. You didn't. It, you know, just go back and look at what made it okay for you to be who you are today to run around in those hills. Because you know what, for me, really, when it comes to history, you mention these kind of people, you mention the heroes to certain generations, and they have not a clue who these people are. And I really think that at some point down the line, we really need to open up a museum, a museum or something where people can go and find this history. No, there's, we have history, natural history museums. We have museums of London. We have museums of fucking everything. You know, we really need to have our gay history in one place where people can go and they can see these people that made everything okay for us today or even a little bit better for us today. Do you know what I mean? There's so many of them, you know, that are just wondrous people, incredible people that I fear that will always be, could quite easily be forgotten in a generation's time. No, I fear that too. I came out in 1985 and my 
initial experience was of, of wanting desperately to learn more. So I kind of cultivated a group of friends who were a few years older than me that I could learn about the community in the past. And I think because of the AIDS epidemic, partly, there was a kind of break in the chain of kind of people passing on stories. And the younger kids that came afterwards didn't have anyone to, to communicate those stories to them. And I think it's widened, isn't it, that gap? It's widened over the years. When you try to talk to people about the, the AIDS epidemic, they haven't got a clue. They don't know when it started, how it ended, you know, how many people died. You know, the, you tried to talk to, I was telling someone the other day about the quill, you know, the AIDS quill. We're like, what's that? And I was just like, you know, these, these, these things that were acts of kindness. In the book, I talk about, you know, St. Cuthbert's in Ells Court being the only church that would bury and do services for people that have died of AIDS. Can you imagine what we, you know, at that point in time when, what we were going through between from 85 to 95. You know, those years were like the crucial years from 89 to 95 in London were really the the, the, the whirlwind years of where every, we lost everybody, so many people. And it wasn't, you know, oh my God, if you heard so and so. People just didn't, they just weren't there anymore. You've seen them three weeks before in the disco and suddenly they were gone. And, and it was just like such harrowing and traumatic times. And people, yeah, I get it. You know, people don't like to remember trauma. I'm the opposite, you see. I don't remember the good times. I remember the bad times. That's the way I'm wired, you know, as an addict. But, you know, I just think that there's so many unsung heroes that really need to be remembered for what they did and who they are. And Quentin Crisp is at the top of that list. There's a wonderful moment in Negative or Servant where he turns up at a sort of underground gay bar and, <laughs> and they tell him they tell him that he's spoiling it for the others and they turn him away. Yeah. And then years later, George and D Divine David did a song called Spoiling It for the Others, which I thought oh, was fantastic. Yeah. It's so genius. Yeah, it's so genius. You have to leave your spoiling it for us. Because you're bringing, you're bringing the gay shame on us. Do you know what I mean? It was just amazing. Because he had bright red hair and lipstick. He's so good. So genius. And the fact that it is, it's a true story. You know, you can watch it as, as for what it is and just think, oh my God, this film's incredible. But the fact that it's a true story and that he, you know, that's what he went through on a daily basis. The fact that he was already in his dotage when he decided just to up sticks and move to America. I mean, what an amazing thing to do. Incredible. And, you know, then Sting was obsessed by him for that while. He wrote yeah. I'm an alien, yeah. alien in New York and had him in the video. And then, you know, the, the whole video was just Quentin Chris walking through the streets of New York. Amazing. amazing. And, you know, what I loved about him was the fact that he never cleaned his flat. He had this theory that dust only comes to a certain level. He said after, after the first four years, it doesn't get any worse. <laughs> I love that. I love that. You know what I mean? Because when you went to meet him, you had to meet him in the restaurant. You never invited to his house. So you had to always meet him in the cafe. Depending on what time of day it was, he had three different cafes that he went to. He went somewhere for, for dinner. He went to, yeah, it, it, you know, amazing. I really wish I'd met him. I was due to interview him when he came over, when he died. I was so gutted. I would have loved to have met him. He came over to his little tour, didn't he? Bless yeah. his heart. A superhero. Who is your third and final person? And why did you, you know, this person? I chose this person because it's just like, 
it had to be this person. You know, my mother is my hero is on every level. She's 80. She she came to London for my book launch and she just being it's unconditional love. You know, when I dedicate my book, I dedicate my book to my dog, Taylor, and to unconditional love and to all the mothers and my obviously my mum and all the mothers of the world. Because it's really important. The older we get, we lose that connection with our mothers. And I've always been a mummy's boy, and I always was, and my mum always stood by me. If I wanted permed hair when I was 12, I had permed hair. My mum allowed me to do that stuff. My mum gave me the foresight. It was okay to wear her shoes. It was okay to dress up in her clothes. My mum allowed me to go out the house in drag when I was, when I was 12, 13 and 14. She, she had no issue with it at all. My dad, on the other hand, had an issue with it because he kind of knew that, the, that I was making my life difficult. He knew that other people wouldn't be that accepting as they were. So my dad was my dad's issue. But, you know, my mom always fought for my right to be who I was. And she's always been through everything that I've been through in my life. She's, she's been there through it with me. You know, she, when I was an addict, she supported me in my addiction. She didn't praise me in my addiction. She didn't turn her back on me. She supported me in the sense that I could pick the phone up and say, Mom, I'm really fucked. I really, I really need help. And she would be there to help. It was, there was never anywhere, oh, my God, don't contact us again, or any of that stuff. My mum was really understandable. And, you know, when I, uh, I'd lost Tom, my partner, in, in 95. He died of AIDS. He'd, he'd had it for five years. He was diagnosed. I probably contracted it at the same time. Uh, I had a several same-day tests. They came back negative, because in those days, they didn't really know what they were testing for. They didn't realise there were different strains, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and it was a walk-in place. It was always dodgy. Do you know what I mean? But that, for me, was enough. I was like, yeah, negative, that's all I needed to know. Didn't need the ins and outs of whether it was, like, accurate or not. That was all at that point in time I needed to know, because that's kind of what kind of gave me the right to survive. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. Um, I think if I'd found out then, it would have been a different story. Anyway, so my mom at that point in 2001, you know, she, I've been ill for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. I kept blacking out and passing out and ending up in situations. And my mom came to my house out of the blue on the Tuesday and found me unconscious on the floor in the house. And my mom straight away called an ambulance and they were going to take me to St. Thomas's. And my mom was like, no, 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 we need to go to Chelsea and Westminster. My mom knew that they had the best HIV AIDS clinic there. And they, they took me straight to St. Stephen's. And I was diagnosed on the spot, taken straight into Macaulay and nearly died. The infections were so strong. My viral load was in the billions and my T-cells were under 167 T-cells. I had full-blown AIDS. You know, my mom never once freaked out. My mom was like, okay, you can do this. You've got this. My mom held my hand for all of that time. You know, when I was in a coma, my mom stayed at the hospital and I, I knew none of that. I came round. My mom was there. My mom had made it okay for them to put me on a trial drug. They went to see my mom and they were like, look, we have this new drug that we want to trial him on. It's in his brain because I had to have lumbar punches every day to get the fluid off my brain. My brain had swollen where the, the virus like, had taken over everything. And basically, my mum gave them permission. My mum was like, yes, I want my son to live. And my mum had the foresight to, to give the green light and it worked. And I just think that, you know, a lot of mothers wouldn't know what to do or wouldn't know that situation to be in or would think, oh, no, no, I'm not going to do this to him. 
And she, she made it okay. You know, she did all of that throughout my addiction and throughout everything. She's always been there. She was the last person I gave the book to. And she kept saying, are you going to give me a copy? Are you going to give me a copy? And I was like, no, because you're the only person that comes out bad in it. I'm joking. I think I didn't give it to her because I was really, really scared about what she would think. Her opinion really mattered so much that I was really scared to give it to her. Because everyone else I gave it to, I knew that I would get opinions from. But I really, really wanted them to understand it and love it. So I gave it to them at the last moment. And my mum rang me crying. She said, oh, I want you to know I love you so much. And I was like, I know that. And that's why, you know, it was okay to write that book. There was never one moment where I had to sit and think, oh, my God, I can't put this in because of my mum. My mum knows everything about me. She never, ever once judged me for it. You know, she would tell me when I was wrong and when I was right. And she's a remarkable person. And she's, she, as I say, she's 80 now. She just had a big operation. She's, uh, she rang me this morning. She's absolutely fine. You know, talking about wanting to go out and blah, 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 as usual. And she's still as glamorous today as she was back then. And what was really brilliant was the Guardian, you know, the Observer, one of the two, did this flashback thing where they made, they had a picture of me and my mum from my book. And they wanted us to reenact it. So basically, it's an old picture from like, I thought they were going to use this picture from the Sunday Times of me and my mum in the 80s lying on the Chesterfield sofa with my mum with Perns hair set on the end. Like they'd use for a day in the life on the back page, you know, the Sunday Times. I really thought they were going to use that. And I turned up at seven in the morning to this photo shoot. And they were like, no, 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 we're not doing that. And I was like, what? Yeah, we're not doing that. We're doing this. It was a picture of me when I was six months old as a baby. Sitting on my mum's lap. My mum had a beehive in the most amazing dress. And I was like, what? And they were like, they dressed me as a baby. <laughs> and my mum had a beehive. It was amazing. And the actual pictures were incredible. Absolutely incredible. But I was just sitting there all day thinking, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm dressed as a giant baby. And they were like, can you pull the face you're pulling in the picture? And I was like... <laughs> At 56, trying to be like six-month-old Tony. You know, my mum was just like so... It was like water off the duck's back to her. And I just read an interview that she did the other day with one of the papers talking about my HIV and everything. And there was such an understanding in her voice. It wasn't like, oh, yeah, he's got this and I didn't really know about it, blah, blah. She knows her stuff. I mean, and sometimes it blows me away because I could, I could get that about her. She sounds like an extraordinary woman and the fact that she has obviously gone to great lengths to inform herself and be as useful and as helpful as she can be in those situations. Did you have the conversation of coming out to her or did she, did she just know? I remember once my mum said to me, oh, I was about five or six and my mum said to me, I know what you are. And I remember thinking, what's she on about? I said, the doctor told me that you were gay when you were three. <laughs> And I remember thinking, well, I'm sitting here where I clean your clothes. I can't think it's a dead giveaway. <laughs> there was this one time we went to Margate for the day. On this estate that we lived on, the Tenants Association, we would put on these coach trips to seaside towns and everyone would pay and get on the coach. And I remember we went and I, there was a joke shop that sold plastic tip, like that really hard breastplates tied up at the back. And I remember buying them and just being obsessed by them and wearing them all around Margate and wearing them all around the estate, not constantly. 
And my mum would be like, do you not want to put them back in the house? I'd be like, no, I love them. And my mum would just be like, anyone who says anything to you, you come and tell us. And I'd be like, yeah, I will. Do you know what I mean? She was proud of what I was doing because I could express who I was. Having that kind of unconditional love from a parent makes such a difference to a person. And I know people who've had it and I know people who haven't had it and how different their lives have been because of it. What do you think that you owe her? I think that the main thing that I owe her is to stay clean and to be true to myself and to be as honest as I possibly can. That's what I owe her. I owe her the morals that she brought us up with. I really, really forgot about when I went into addiction, you know, because we forget who we are. And then when you come through it, you know, that, those learned behaviours, they take a while for those learned behaviours to go away. And then you get back to being who you are and who you're meant to be. And then you can go forward with that. So I owe it to my mum never to pick up another drink or never to take another drug in my life because I could not possibly put her or anyone else that I loved to that degree through that again. And primarily, I couldn't put myself through it because like today, I love myself. And I only learned that from the likes of my mum, the likes of George Michael, and the likes of Quentin Chris. They make it okay for us to be who we are. This has been such a great conversation. Thank you so much, Tony. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on. And it's an honour. It really is. There's certain people in our community that I really uh, look up to, and you're one of them, for the many years of service that you've given to the community and stood by your own personal beliefs. You're a remarkable person. I'm honoured to be on your podcast. Bless you. Feelings mutual. My thanks to Tony for being such a wonderful guest. You can find him on Instagram at DJ underscore Fat Tony, one word, underscore. Coming up soon on We Can Be Heroes. My mum took me to see The Wizard of Oz at the cinema. It was the first time I ever went to a film on the big screen. And when I saw Judy Garland, when I specifically heard her singing Over the Rainbow, I thought, here is someone whose feelings seem to be as strong as mine. And she's not ashamed of it. She's not afraid of it. She's not even embarrassed. She's not hiding it. She's leading with her strong feelings as though they're the best thing that people could have. She wasn't like any man or woman that I had ever experienced before. And I remember saying to my parents, but, but like, but what is she? And my parents just went, she's Grace Jones. This has been We Can Be Heroes with me, Paul Burston. Please subscribe and join me next time. Thanks for listening.